Today, we're going to start the session with a conversation with Song Kim. Uh, Song is the Chief of Corporate Development and Strategy at Chegg, and we are going to get a perspective on exit strategy, corporate development, acquisitions, M&A, and uh, especially focused on the ed tech sector. Song, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start with a little bit of introduction of your background. What path have you pursued in the industry? And then we'll get into some specific topics. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I'm really um, you know, grateful to have the opportunity to be here and to speak. Um, I've been working in corporate strategy and development for the past six and a half years. Um, to me, it's important to articulate my role in that way because the strategy part must lead the development part. Um, yeah. The characteristic that most differentiates what I do now versus what I did prior is the strategy part. It's, it's more than closing deals. It's more than yielding high IRRs or even you know, sector-based or theme-based investing. Um, any acquisition I advocate for needs to support, enable, or extend the strategic growth capabilities of the company I work for. Um, prior to corporate strategy and development, I spent the balance of my career in technology growth equity, private equity buyouts, investment banking, and before that, um, investment research. Fantastic. We are uh, strategy aficionados, as you probably know from our work. <laughs> we we believe in great strategy deeply, and uh, and I, I actually believe that you know you can cut off a lot of slab and and unnecessary you know what we call Brownian motion, nervous energy that doesn't produce any movement um, by doing good strategy, good positioning, good uh, you know good intentional work so we're gonna we're gonna dive into that let's um, let's start today's conversation with some perspective on your current role and what does CorpDev M&A play in the Czech world in particular and in the EdTech world more broadly sure um Maybe, maybe I can start with kind of, you know, how we think about acquisitions and, and how that really yeah. fits into that world you just described. Um, you know, where I work at Chegg, we, we typically start at a very high level by asking a really simple question, which is, what's inevitable? Um, working at an IT company, we might say that the skills demanded by employers will continue to become increasingly specialized, that the half-lives of the skills uh, will get shorter and shorter. Uh, learners will seek shorter educational pathways to get to income. Um, and that these pathways will need to equip learners with marketable job relevant skills, for example. Right? At the same time, what else is inevitable? The ordinary course of daily life will continue to impede access to education. Right? The need to make money to put food on the table to support your children or your elderly parents or grandparents. So what else is inevitable? Uh, education will need to be less expensive, more accessible, more adaptable, relevant to the jobs that learners actually want, 
and that employers actually need coming out of our educational system. So and once we answer the question of what's inevitable, this paints a picture of the ecosystem that needs to exist in order to meet these inevitabilities and gives us a sense for the kind of company we need to be to win in that future. Then uh, we build a bridge from where we are today to what we need to become and the steps of that bridge really become our strategy, uh, which is ever changing, by the way, um, never static. Um, we think about the, I'm sorry? Now, in, in that process, there are obviously boundaries um, of like what is the world that you want to play in. <coughs> the, the ed tech world is broader than the world that Chegg is playing in. Mm -hmm. So how do you define that boundary? And, and to what extent does your strategy and M&A work? How do you think about acquisitions play in expanding that boundary? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, you know, we, when we build that bridge, you know, we need to take stock of what our competencies are, what our assets are, what makes us uniquely qualified or well positioned to play the role that we believe we need to play. And so we think about the audiences that we will need to serve, um, the ways in which we will need to serve them, and whether or not those capabilities are ones we have or can leverage, or that or whether there are capabilities we'll need to invest in to help us get there. So things that extend our capabilities beyond what we currently offer to our existing audience. Um, so extending those capabilities that we can serve them and to expand our reach beyond our current base to a broader audience, whether that's on the basis of territory or a different demographic, someone who is further downstream in terms of their journey through their lives and whether or not uh, we should be fit to serve them and whether we'd be best positioned to do that. So to that, um, as we continue to zoom in um, and establish some of those guardrails that I think you're asking about, we, we ask really simple questions. Um, in addition to the simple question of what's inevitable, we ask ourselves, what, what problem is it that we're looking to solve? Uh, is that problem big enough to matter, i.e., does it, influence enough people? Is it a pain point that impacts um, a large aspect of our, our society um, and our audience base? And how do we define success? And um, as we go about the process of answering those questions, um, we, we tend to converge on a good view of what are those things that uh, would really move the needle for us? What are those things that are outside the scope of you know, what we should be thinking about and what is in scope and, you know, how do we do it? Do we build it? Do we partner? Do we buy, etc.? Let's do some examples. What, uh, what have you been up to in the last few years that illustrates some of this, um, you know, framework thinking? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, you know, the most recent acquisition that we just announced, which was uh, just over a week ago at this point, um, was the acqu largest acquisition we've ever done in the field of language learning. And so as a company that had its humble roots as a, a textbook rental business that had embarked on a massive transition to digital, right, all of that journey has been, I think, highlighted by the fact that we bet, bet on the inevitable, right, the move towards digital learning, the need for um, democratize access to on-demand 
affordable, self-guided content um, as a companion to the learner who's taking their educational journey. Um, and as we've evaluated the questions around what's inevitable, the, the success of any solution that seeks to do this thing, do this democratization in an efficacious way, um, we'll need to be able to do it on a global basis. We'll need to be able to do it to address um, the hundreds of languages that are spoken, the various territories um, that learners reside in, systems, the educational systems and the employment systems that those um, regions rely on. And so um, there came a point where we realized that we need to make a meaningful investment in the ability to teach languages, not simply English or not simply Spanish, but language pairs, teaching Spanish speakers how to learn French, teaching Italian speakers how to learn Mandarin. And so uh, we really evaluated that against the, the very simple question framework that we laid out, which is, you know, what's the problem we're solving for? We're solving for um, the ongoing educational demands and the, um, the marketability that learners need as future employees of multinational globalized businesses. The um, tendency of businesses to seek um, connections. Uh, my apologies, someone's at the door. Um, but someone, you know, the, the need for businesses to be able to connect their various branches, their regions, their retail stores, whatever it may be, the need for, um, you know, gig economy workers to learn the language of the locale that they're currently residing in. And so there is a there there's this confluence of, of need and problems that we're solving for that are big enough to matter. And a definition of success that is coinciding with the platform we think we're investing towards. So, some uh, one observation as you're speaking that I um, am picking up is that you are changing or broadening your target segment, right? The textbook right. world is K through 12 and higher education, whereas you are now talking about the workforce, you, I hear the word workforce a lot more, and uh, the language learning takes you into a completely different segment, target segment. Is that a correct observation? Is that an yeah. intentional broadening? I, I, I think you're right. So we, we've always characterized our mission as perpetuating and connecting the learning to earning journeys of the learners, right? 84% or more of students routinely report that they enter into the higher educational system to get a better job. A fewer percentage of people report that they go into higher ed for the academic pursuit in and of itself, for example. And so if you look at the world of language learners, right, over half of US college students say that they need help in learning another language. Um, and if you look at the user bases and the adoptees of language-based platforms, whether they're apps or other forms of learning, um, mm -hmm. A quarter to a third, depending on the countries and the regions of the world, say they're doing it because they need it for the purposes of education. So it's not simply uh, to be a compliment, but it's also um, to, yes, please. Um, it's also to, it, my apologies, um, it's, it's also to reinforce and to create the revenue synergy opportunity um, for us to be able to offer what we currently offer in other languages and vice versa, to, to help 
and to seek out and to discover other people in other territories that could benefit from our products if we were to be able to deliver the services um, in a manner that is was that sustainable for them. Is the driver in that acquisition uh, strategy upselling from your current user base, giving them more products to get into? Is that what it's, yeah, it, it actually serves the two purposes I alluded to before, which is it expands the, the the suite of products and services and support we can offer to our existing base, but also extends um, our addressable market and our audience um, that we can deliver our products and services towards. And so, you know, you look at the other three three quarters or so of language learners out there in the world that engage with this platform or, or other platforms like Duolingo, for instance, um, then they're looking at uh, learning for work, right? So, so let's say approximately a quarter of the people who are learning languages say, well, I'm doing it because I need to be um, able to do my job. I need to be able to speak or understand or be somewhat competent in a language to be able to do my job. And so now you start seeing this extension beyond just the educational context and following people throughout their journeys into their careers. Um, and then you always have those people who are just simply learning it because it's uh, leisurely, it's fun, they're planning on traveling, etc. So um, what is the size of your, you know, install base, let's say? Check has been around for a while. What is the size of the install base? Um, you know, we, we have, we have I, I would say we have several million paying subscribers. And in terms of the users of our free products, I would say it's an order of magnitude greater than that. Yeah. And um, the acquisition, talk about the acquisition you made what, uh, in language learning. What, uh, what percentage of that subscriber base, whether it's free users or paid users, that you are looking to convert by bringing this new product suite in? Yeah, we're, we're certainly assessing that opportunity. And, you know, as a public company, I have to be careful about what I'm able to disclose. Um, however, you know, what I can say is that there's a meaningful opportunity for us to bring um, this capability. And, and why is it so useful? It's useful because we know that students as well as employees are looking to brush up on their language skills to gain competence in, the, in, in various languages. We know that um, the contextual impact of adding um, language learning tools and capabilities to our product suite um, enhances the stickiness of our product, increases retention, and drives reasons for engagement that simply span beyond the need for academic support. And so uh, we think that we're creating a, a check for all seasons, so to speak. Um, not so only the I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to have this conversation along these lines is so that people listening can understand how an acquirer thinks about acquisitions targets right so you know one premise in the case of a this is a b2c play right check is a b2c play in edtech there is a there's an existing install base of users both free users as well as paid users and one of the ways a company like Chegg expands its footprint is by bringing in another company that will help them monetize that install base. So in EdTech in particular, I've looked at several companies that have very large install bases and a very large free user bases. EdTech, for some reason, 
has come from a lot of free user kind of dynamic. If you look at Course Hero within the EdTech space, huge install base of free users. So at this point, as public companies, these, uh, well, Course Hero is not public yet, you guys are. So uh, these companies need to figure out how to deliver quarter after quarter of significant growth, and that means some of that free user base has to be monetized. And I think that thinking is, is quite prevalent in a lot of the B2C businesses that have come from this freemium, um, lot of free users kind of dynamic. Is that a correct observation, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, you know, to make the conscious decision to serve this audience and to be a direct-to-consumer business at that, right? not going after the deep pockets, but really the people who need the help, um, you have to have a perspective on how to deliver overwhelming value to the consumer. And to be able to do that at scale, you need to be, uh, in, in my view, you need to be part of a platform that, that can benefit from the network effects of adding a capability that can then be disseminated across the platform internationally, globally, if possible. Um, and so, so absolutely, I would agree with what you said. And, and the other thing that, you know, I think is a unique challenge is people um, and companies in the past, you know, large and small, have often prioritized the, the free aspect of freemium and said, let's worry about monetization later, let's go get all the users we can. But haven't quite, which is not a bad idea, but haven't quite, quite finished building the bridge before they start walking across it. Um, and so having a, an understanding or at least a plan of attack for figuring out how do we convert free usage and engagement into value added services that people are willing to pay for. Um, I think that's a tough question to answer for many companies. And what, um, what have you disclosed on valuation on this most recent acquisition? And, and in general, how do you think about valuation? How does valuation play into your acquisition decision? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so the, the valuation of this deal was approximately $436 million US. This is a company based in London and Madrid. So the transaction was denominated in, in different currency. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, when we think about valuation, um, we think about valuation, you know, it, it's obviously a key factor that impacts whether or not a deal gets done, uh, but it's not, or at, at least it shouldn't be the most important. And valuation I see as a dependent variable that is influenced by a multitude of factors, some of which, you know, founders can influence and others they can't, you know, outside of the general ability for an acquirer to pay, the particular set of reasons an acquirer is interested in the business changes the way it ascribes value to what they're acquiring, you know, whether it's the people, the brand, the customers, or the IP. Um, you know, it really depends on what you bring relative to what the acquirer already perceives itself as already having. Right. It also depends on the acquirer's appetite. Right. Is is the acquirer's appetite to hit singles and doubles all day? Right. Or is it to swing for the fences and 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 for that particular initiative or for that branch of the strategy? You know, where where does the acquisition fit into that risk reward equation? Right? So in this case, in the Busu acquisition, you have you have paid four hundred fifty four million dollars to acquire the company that almost 
inevitably predicates that there is a significant revenue that you're bringing into through this acquisition, yes? There, yeah, we, we think about not only the standalone forecast of the business, but we think about how we can continue to bolster that, how we can right. continue to drive the unit economic efficiency of that. And I would say the last layer we think about is um, how we can enhance that. And so, um, you know, in my experience, you know, when an acquirer is too focused on how they're going to make changes starting day one and less focused on truly understanding the business and the team and how to work with that culture, um, you know, it, it doesn't always lead to success when, when you're when you're blinded by, you know, how else you're going to go get revenue starting day one. And so I think we try to remain very vigilant and sensitive to enabling the success of the company in its current form while continuing mm -hmm. to do research and to learn and experiment around the best ways to add value to their consumers. It's, it's not just about hiking up prices, for example, right? Well, I think the way, you know, people listening to this should think about such acquisitions is that the, the current revenue model, current revenue plan and processes, business processes need to continue to function after the acquisition but then obviously there is leverage. There is this huge mass of customers that potentially can be monetized and you need to create the bridges of how that customer is exposed to the new offering and how that converts, how that, you know, absolutely, how that accelerates the growth of the company. So, so that's in the case of larger acquisitions. In, in which case this would qualify as a larger acquisition. What about smaller acquisitions? Have you done smaller acquisitions from Czech? We have. Um, we have. We, we've looked at acquisition from a variety of dimensions, right? Um, the question becomes why? Why would we look at the particular acquisition? We tend not to look at acquisitions, um, you know, one dimensionally. So does it bring us the reach? Does it bring us an extension into a market that we um, would otherwise have less of a presence in? Does it give us a technology capability or a defensible set of IP and mandatory um, in terms of going with any of those factors is, does it bring the team? Does it bring mm -hmm. a team that's committed, capable, um, and not only extrinsically motivated by the exit outcome, but intrinsically motivated by a sense of ownership and pride in the business and the willingness to grow with it um, over time. In the smaller acquisitions, the team is really, really important. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, in the smaller acquisitions, what role does valuation play? Yeah. Um, you know, again, yeah, I'm going to start with a disclaimer that it really depends on why you're acquiring the business and what the what what you're ascribing the value of the business to. Um, the the role of valuation is always prevalent and important, um, but I think it really um, the needle gets moved by the conviction that an acquirer is able to build about what it's acquiring and the future state of that team, as well as that business product, service, or technology, whatever it is. And so, um, again, when, when you're talking about smaller check sizes, 
Um, you know, the, the acquirer tends to f focus on, you know, the simplest form of consideration it can, which is cash along with, you know, some, some equity incentive to continue to grow the business in whatever form that may take. Uh, but you're right, you, you don't have the company wondering, you don't have acquirers wondering about what its currency is worth. For instance, you know, in, in a large acquisition or a large merger scenario, um, there's a whole other set of considerations around what is the, the value of my currency? What's the value of my stock? How do I think about that? How do I weigh the cost of debt against the cost of equity against the valuation? And so I think when it comes to smaller businesses, um, it's really about what is a successful outcome for that team, given the business or the products that they built? How much conviction do we have in the additive capability of that and its ability to integrate into the longer term roadmap and strategy of what we're trying to accomplish with the deal? Um, and what is that worth to us? And that last question again. Can you do an example? I think we have time for one example. Yeah, of course. Um, so we acquired a company a couple years ago, and it's a it offers an equation solver. And so mm -hmm. students, very lucky students these days, have a luxury of being able to type in a formula or point their cameras at a math problem and get step-by-step -step coaching um, and solutions on what rules to apply, what concepts, what numerical calculations. Mm -hmm. And so um, these two founders had, had bootstrapped uh, the business for, for 20 years. And mm -hmm. you know, there, there are some uniquenesses of bootstrap businesses. One is it's likely that the company exists because the founders are intrinsically motivated, had a problem to solve for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, found a very novel solution and are deeply vested in the long-term success of the business, right? There's a lot of confidence to be gained by knowing that it wasn't just an outsider who made the economic decision to be in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. right? So one thing I would seek to, one thing I, I, I would seek and I sought to understand is, you know, are they trying to take the business to the next level or are they just tired, right? It's okay to be both. Um, the job isn't easy, right? So, so trying to understand the why and the how around the opportunity um, and, the, and the real kind of orientation of the founders in terms of the growth mindset, right? Um, and how, how, how much revenue did they have? 20 years bootstrapping to what level of uh, traction? Um, I, I, I would, unfortunately, I can't disclose the exact number, but it was, it was a, a meaningful amount that led to a valuation in excess of $100 million. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it was run, that, that's, that's the other difference of a bootstrap business is that it's typically been run with capital efficiency and operating discipline. Um, sometimes, depending on the deal to the point of conservatism. And that, I mentioned that because it's a double-edged sword from my perspective. On, on the bright side, you know, what you see is what you get, which is a high quality, stable business with very competent operators at the helm. On the other hand, it, it could have been a business maybe that could grow 10 times faster and won the race towards market leadership if allowed to breathe more freely. So one of the questions- Which I, is a case for your acquisition, right? That is what, by putting in more of that marketing throttle and, and leveraging your existing customer base, you can grow much faster. That absolutely. is the rationale for acquiring absolutely. such a business. 
Yeah, yeah, and and so so you know, doing that is a clear opportunity, but in also also to have the conviction to be able to do that with this team and with this company, you know, we undertake a, a very deep or as deep as we can an assessment of 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 the founders, their 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 growth mindset, and the way they would think about investing. So one of the many questions I might ask is, if I tripled your operating budget, how would you spend it? Right. That, that mm -hmm. answer is important to me because it, it gives me a sense for how the founders think about investing in growth, whether it's in pure dollars or people or otherwise. And, um, you know, sometimes the thought hasn't even occurred to some founders because that's not the world they live in. Right. right. Yep. Now, did the founders stay with the company after the acquisition? Could you repeat that? Did the founders stay in the company after the acquisition? Absolutely, yeah. We um, of of all the deals we've done, which have been dozens up to this point, there only, there's only been one acquisition that we have done where the founder um, did not stay with the business for a multi multiple year period afterwards, and and it was a sub one million dollar deal to be quite honest with you, and it was done for very specific reasons. But you know, one of the I, you know, one of the reasons we acquire businesses instead of build or partner for them is that one, we believe they will be a core part of the fabric of who we are going forward. And two, we don't believe that we can do it better without them. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. I, you know, that, that value, that, that value proposition, I think needs to come out through, you know, the dialogue um, that occurs early on, which is our visions converging and why are we best positioned to partner up, right? Very good. So one thing I would be very interested in doing is a story on this company that you acquired that was bootstrapped for 20 years and then they exited to Chegg. If you are uh, open to that, please make the connection and we will invite them to uh, tell their story on from their angle and how they spent 20 years bootstrapping the company. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, um, I'll let them know. Yeah, I'll be very right. happy to do that. Yeah. Well, very, very enlightening. We'll continue the conversation. We'll have you back and uh, we'll uh, continue now with uh, some of the mentoring work, okay? Great. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Very well.